All right, well, let's have a word of prayer then and we'll get into our text this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to gather with believers of like precious faith, to have fellowship around our common bond in, in you, our faith in your finished work on our behalf as you died, were, were buried, and then rose again, victorious over sin, victorious over the grave, victorious over death. Pray that we would be even reminded that as we stand in your shoes, in a sense, we're positionally identified with you, we're now in Christ, that we have a bright, a bright future as far as the present, the days that are ahead of us, even the remainder of what we have yet this evening, and then each and every day until we go to be with you. It should be bright, and it should be something that we're filled with gratitude, we have a sense of purpose and a hope that's shining from us or oozing from our pores to the point that others might even be tempted to ask about the hope that's in us as we are a reflection of your light and your love and your life as you work in and through us when we're willing to keep our eyes focused on you and let you have your way in our lives. Thank you for those that are laboring behind the scenes in Truth for Youth and Youth Group Ministries tonight. Pray that that would be a beneficial and useful time for those young people, that they could have a greater sense of appreciation for who you are how good you are, how much you love them, and how you have a plan and purpose for their life. Pray that you allow us to just have a mindset even here that is seeking to learn more about you and be even reminded of things that maybe we had learned in the past but forgotten and that we would have even take away some practical applications that would affect our everyday lives as they affect our, our thinking. Pray that you give me wisdom so that what is said would be accurate and clear. Pray that what is done in this church, whether it's today or any time we gather, would bring you honor and glory, that we would be a reflection of your light into the community around us, and that we would be encouraging to one another when we gather. Thanks again for your great love, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of tonight's message is, Man Always Falls Short. Man Always Falls Short. Now, there's lots of different examples of that you could talk about as it relates to biblical matters. But this is what I would consider to be a primary theme of the Bible. And I often talk about primary themes because understanding the underlying message or the point makes the Bible smaller. If you can have some big picture understanding of the Bible, it's going to make the whole thing come together. So as you're thinking about big picture themes, one of them is that man is incapable of saving himself. Man always comes up short. When man is focused on self and the horizontal instead of trusting the Lord, focusing on him, depending on him, resting in him, walking by faith as it relates to a relationship with him, that man will not thrive. That man will be a colossal failure in terms of the spiritual realm. And so you're less likely to get lost in the details of the Bible when you remember that there are some big picture, clear themes that you can track. And one of those big picture themes is the insufficiency and hopelessness of man apart from God's intervention and complete provision. That man is hopeless and helpless and ultimately hellbound were it not for the provision of God to undertake to first deal with the penalty of his sin, but then also to give access or provision for victory over the power of sin to influence and reign in our lives, that we would have freedom from that so that we could live lives as empowered by God, directed by God, that would ultimately please him and bring him glory and would also be beneficial to us as it relates to the here and now, our present walk, our present lives. 
So as we're thinking about these themes, presenting a historical overview of the kings ties into this as we're thinking about chronicles. We have this overview of history even started, we saw, from Adam, but primarily focused on the line of the kings. Not just any kings, but the line of the the messianic line of kings through the line of Judah, the Judah kings. And as we're thinking about this overview or this historical reminder of their history as Again, the chronicler is writing to those that are post-exile and trying to encourage them that the story has an ending that hasn't been written yet. And what you're facing right now or what you're experiencing right now is a restoration in part, but we're looking forward to collectively this complete restoration. And though we're not Jewish and though we're not a part of the promises in a sense that directly a, a part of the promises that were made to the nation of Israel as you think about the covenant promises, we're vicariously beneficiaries of that in the sense that one of the three main promises, covenantal promises to Abraham was that through you and your descendants, a king, all of the nations, hence all of the people of the world will be blessed. And so as we're thinking about how though there's some downsides in the storyline or some low points in the storyline, it's all pointing though to this idea that man is going to need a rescuer. There needs to be a more perfect human in the sense that we're going to have the unique God-man, Jesus Christ, who will be the savior of the world. But as it relates to human authorities or human leaders, even when it comes to human spiritual leaders, whether it ends up being some of the passages in the Old Testament that point to the failures of the priests or the line of the priests, or it's more governmental leaders as it relates to what should be spiritual examples to a nation in terms of leadership, mankind, which Whichever one of those categories of people you're talking about, they come up short. They're not, they are not the example that God wanted them to be. But as we think about this overview of human kings, they're leading towards what? As we look at Chronicles, we're, we're retelling the story of the line of kings in Judah that are leading to the Messianic king, the Messiah king. And there's this picture being painted, it's a vivid picture of human failure and the need for a better kind of king. Not, not a human king, but a king of kings, a divine king, a rescuer who could step in and redeem, restore, reconcile re- mankind. And that we know is ultimately going to be at the storyline building towards that king of kings, Jesus who came, though he was rejected by his own, he offered and made possible the salvation of all men through his death, burial, and resurrection. Something that God had been telling people, I will provide, there's coming a redeemer. It's not yet, but it's coming. They were looking forward to that, and then we have that, and now we look back even at that event with this idea that he's coming again. The king, the Old Old Testament pointing to the coming king. Now us looking back and and seeing that though, though he came, he ultimately due to rejection left, but he left with the promise that he would come again. And so the, the Bible all of a sudden, as far as I see it, becomes a lot smaller when you're thinking about it in those terms. Now as we think about this, this overview that's supposed to lead to this conclusion that mankind, but especially the Jewish people in this context, they're going to need a better kind of king. You look at some of the examples that are now going to be given starting in chapter 10. And as you look at these examples, starting with Saul, but then getting into the Davidic line of kings because of the covenant promises made to David, you see this picture that the kings were supposed to be spiritual leaders. 
They were supposed to promote true worship among the nation of Israel. They were supposed to set a spiritual tone for the nation, but they did not. They did not. That was what was supposed to happen, but it didn't. Hence, we're again setting up this contrast between human kings, no matter which one we're talking about, inadequate, ultimately insufficient, ultimately we're seeing that we're going to need this need for the provision and the sufficiency that comes from God providing the right kind of leader, just like we needed God to provide the Savior, and they are all wrapped up in one and the same person, or the right kind of priest. And so as we think about even our example from the Chronicles, so far, Chronicles is going to be showing us now, starting here, but then going on for most of the rest of the, the books, they're together but as one book, they're going to show us this history of the kings with this emphasis on spiritual leadership, but specifically, though it includes stories of success, it's especially also going to include the stories of failure and how these human kings did not live out or accomplish this purpose that God had for them, which was to point people back to a walk of faith, a sense of dependence on God, Again, to do for man what man could not do for himself. Now, this overview we're going to see here tonight, it begins with a sad summary of the death of Israel's first king, and that was Saul. So, if you haven't already, let's take a look at this section in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Not an overly long chapter, but I have a lot more to say about Saul, so we'll have to keep moving. Verse 1, now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Note the contrast there between the, what were supposed to be the servants of the Most High God and those that are worshiping false gods. Verse 10, Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fast, fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree of Jabesh, Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now you say, 
I'm not 100% sure what part of this was going to be encouraging tonight. There's a lot that was written in the books of First and Second Samuel about Saul. I guess mostly just First Samuel. But it's summarized, his life is summarized by 14 verses here. As we're looking again, why would that be? Because we're starting with the first king and we're painting this picture about how human, humanity as a, in general, but starting with those that were supposed to be the leadership team, those that were promoting a faithful re- response of faith, a walk by faith to God, they didn't get it right. They, they were insufficient to fulfill that mission. And that's why yet another example through these people of how man has this desperate need for God, for God to undertake in his life, since man is not going to be able to do it on his own. Another picture of how when man is trusting God, God, man is successful. Spiritually, and in the case of the Mosaic Covenant, physically successful, nationally prosperous. And when they're not, then they're not, there's no prosperity. They're not successful. Their way is not good. And so that's, again, the constant theme. When, when man goes horizontal and is trusting himself, looking to himself, depending on himself, not looking vertically, having a posture of humility and trusting God, again, to do for him what he can't do for himself, he's a spiritual wreck, a spiritual failure. And then in the context of the promises or the covenant arrangement and the promises made by the nation to all that you say we will do, God says, I'll bless you if you will actually trust me and you'll actually follow me, but I will curse you, not just spiritually, physically. And so we see that even through the lives of these various kings, but where Saul's life is summarized by 14 verses that are fairly negative. We're going to see there are a few positive points in it, but that's where it starts because how could you start this story of human kings that don't measure up to the king of kings and the need for the king of kings? Uh, how could you start that without talking about Saul? Now, before we get any further with our study, I did want to give a little bit of overview here about how did Israel even end up with a king? That's something that I used to wonder. Like, how did we have these different stages of the, of the storyline where you go from, there's not even any human government. There's just consci- innocence and conscience. There's promise. There's some semblance of, there's some semblance of, of human government. Uh, sorry, that comes first. Then you have promise. Then you have the law. Uh, but how did we get from the law to then judges? How did we get from judges to kings with prophets existing kind of in the same time frame, but you had some prophets that were existing, even Moses, God spoke through Moses, even Samuel, though he was first and foremost, he was a a spiritual leader, probably operated as much as anything as a priest, but he was also a prophet, and it's also said that he judged the nation. He was also a judge. So Samuel was sort of this transitionary figure between priest, prophet, judge, but ultimately then we move into this era, if you will, of, of human kings going on right through the end of the Old Testament. Well, how did that happen? How did Israel even end up with a king? I want to share that story with you a bit here tonight. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, because I think this is actually just as encouraging as these 14 verses. Maybe not encouraging, but a good reminder. Then when you start to look for human solutions instead of divine enablement and provision, man has a real problem. Let me say that again. When you start to look to 
humanity or human solutions to instead of looking to God, depending on God, trusting God, you've missed the boat. That's ultimately how Israel ended up with a king in part, although we're going to see that God always intended for them to have a king, unsure of the exact timeline of that, if this was in keeping with that timeline, but we know it wasn't, their motives were not right. So we see that what happened effectively is everyone seemed pretty happy with Samuel for the most part. He was a very respected person within the nation of Israel, and so there wasn't any call for a king while he was acting as a judge, while he was acting as, again, a priest and also a prophet, but primarily a judge. So as Samuel was acting in that capacity, there was no call for this, but read chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to see that the problem was that Samuel's sons were wicked men. And so when they looked at the prospect of those sons judging, and it says that they were, he made them that, the people were dissatisfied with them. Now, isn't that a little bit sobering? Here you have a character that is very highly regarded in Scripture, Samuel. He has this very significant role as a man of faith in the, in the whole nation of Israel. And yet, his sons don't taste and see that the Lord is good. His, his sons don't buy what he's selling. And that's sort of scary to anyone who's a parent, right? That's heartbreaking. Because as a parent, our goal is to pass along a sense of awe for God to the next generation. One generation shall declare your praises to the next. This idea that the goodness of God and an understanding of that, a need to depend on God could be passed on from us to the next generations. And regardless of the age of your own children, it's irrelevant. God, if you're still alive, God is still using you to influence future generations. Perhaps not even your own, but perhaps other young people here in this church. Perhaps other people that you have in contact with. Perhaps it's your grandchildren. But you have this opportunity to have that impact, but it's every person must choose. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. Children have to choose for themselves. They can't ride in on your coattails. So we see that's what happened here. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. What's their conclusion or what's the human wisdom that they came up with? Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So that's what triggered this. It's not even necessarily, I wouldn't say any evil kind of a thing. It's, hey, we were happy to have you sort of lead and handle disputes and, and, and be the one that everybody sort of looked to for guidance. But we're not willing to have your evil sons do that. So what's their solution? Give us a king. Give us a king. So one of the things that the, the takeaway here should be is that really upset Samuel because as he saw it, God was already their king. So to have a human king was blasphemous to him to some extent. It seems like that was his understanding of it. And so he's upset about it. And so we see that in verse six, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. 
Now notice what Samuel's response is to being upset. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Man, isn't that a novel approach? To being upset about something? To being bothered by something? To bring that to the throne of grace? And God says this, they're ultimately rejecting me. That's what's happening here, Samuel. They're not, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me. And that's what they've consistently done all along. It doesn't matter the fabric or the makeup of the leadership structure, whether it was Moses and it was along with 70 elders, whether it was Moses and Aaron and Miriam kind of helping out with some of that. God doesn't make any difference what the structure was. The nation of Israel, people in general, starting way, beyond, way before them, consistently refused to trust God. Fused to allow him to lead and direct in their lives or serve as king, so to speak, the final authority in their life. People refuse to do that today. And that's exactly what happened there. Read verses six through nine. We read six, seven, it says, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. That's what they don't want. That was the obvious conclusion here is we don't even need a judge. What we need is to trust the Lord. What we need is to ask him for guidance. What we need is to ask him for direction. Verse 8, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day. That's him saying, this is just a pattern, a continuation of the same old thing, a, just a new day. Now, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. They'd already been doing that. They did that even at the base of Mount Sinai while the law was being given. So they are doing to you also. This is what they're doing to you also in verse 9. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So there's a caveat to this. And we'll pick up with that a little bit later. But just warn them that this thing that they think is going to be so wonderful in place of these evil children of, of yours, Samuel, that these kings are going to be worse. They're going to be... A bond, they're going to put them in bondage. It's not going to be what they hope for. Now, I want to comment about this because I, it was interesting as I was studying. There is a practical need for centralized leadership in Israel. Based on what they're, what they're dealing with right now, what's going on in the context, there is this need for centralized leadership. And what do I mean by that? Well, before having a king... Up to this point here, Israel was a scattered nation, a collection of tribes without any central leadership or formal government. Now, we already looked at this uh, when we were looking at the beginning of this, that the elders of Israel. So there was elders, there was leadership in place that had been the way it had gone, even going back to some advice that was given by Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, that, hey, you can't administer this nation of two million plus people on your own. There's going to need to be more people in charge. But yet there was a still strong tribal system. And even as they split up the land, there was tribal arrangements there, a territorial sense there. And so there wasn't this strong national government, if you will, or formal leadership. Now, in times of troubles, the leaders who had, had been most recently judges and then the elders within the, each individual tribe would arise, and they, but they never consolidated the power of the 12 tribes into one nation. Some would participate, some wouldn't. Those people would settle disputes, but they weren't very well situated or equipped to rule or keep some cohesiveness amongst all of the nation of Israel in times of war, and that's what was going on in the context. 
War and conflict were regular fixtures of the time. Now, we're talking about approximately 1100 BC, but this time leading up to the kings. And war broke out on a fairly regular basis between Israel and the Philistines. One example of that, you'd only have to go back to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel here. So in part because of the constant threat of war, the people pressed Samuel to appoint a king to rule over them. And we saw that in verse 5. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Part of that was driven by self-preservation. It was driven by a fear of all of this conflict that was a continual part of their lives. And as you think about even God raising up judges at different times, because of this oppression that Israel faced from not having a strong united front collectively as a nation, they faced a lot of attacks from a lot of different groups. So the idea here is, how did Israel end up with a king? That's part of it. There was a need for it in a sense. And even having a king was not necessarily a bad thing. This was previously predicted in Scripture. It seems that God would have given Israel a king at some point, and I don't, some maybe take the view that that would have been the Messiah king, that that would, be, would have been the first king, but I don't, I don't think that's it. I think it was intended to be sooner than that. And we're not going to go to all these passages, but he had promised kingship to the patriarchs. He said, your offspring will be kings. Without giving a lot of detail about that, you can look that up on your own in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. Genesis 17, verse 17. Genesis 35, verse 11. Those are things said to Abraham and Jacob, I believe. All in Genesis. That from your line, from your offspring, some of them are going to be kings. But I want to take a look at a a more close in context passage from Deuteronomy chapter 17, turn there if you will, where God gave instructions for a king in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, who remembers from our study of Deuteronomy what Deuteronomy was all about? Remember, we're trying to make the Bible smaller. What was Deuteronomy about? Well, Deuteronomy was a never forget. Never forget. Moses was on his sort of last legs It was his swan song, so to speak, and Moses gave a series of talks, remember, to the nation of Israel. He reminded them about things that they ought not forget. Some of the reminders, but I would say the main emphasis there was actually to remember that God is for you. You are special and God is for you. He has been carrying you, remember, like a father carries a child. He's he's been doing that all along. And so there was a lot of looking back and saying, remember God's faithfulness here. Remember how God undertook here. Remember here. Remember here. Don't forget that. Trust God so that you can be successful. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we see this foreshadowing or this discussion about coming kings. Kings that would be in place when they came into the land, the promised land. I want to pick up in verse 14. It says this, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, now is that this present time? Yeah, this, that's what they're doing right now. And you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, 
you have to take one of two perspectives. Either one, you're going to say that this was written into this after the fact, or you're going to say God knew exactly what they would do. And that's, that's my take on it. Now he says this is going to happen. They, they're going to have this mentality. You shall surely, you, when you have that perspective, verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So this is going to happen, but when this happens, you better keep in mind that the Lord is the one who should choose. Now, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So make sure it's somebody who's a believer. That's the, the, big, the big part of that. There's they're somebody who is an Israelite, but more important than that, they're somebody who worships the, the, one, the one and only true God. Verse 16, but this king, this future king, he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Remember, the path with God is forward, not backward. 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. What is the idea of these things? Now, you'll see that these, all three of these things perpetually become a problem during the time of the kings. They all are a distraction from following after, trusting in, depending on God, not being distracted from the mission, which is to be a nation of lights, a set-aside, a set-apart nation of priests that could attract the Gentile nations to the light of the gospel, the light of the good news, the message of God and God's provision for sinful mankind, though, though in the context of what they understood about that, that they would point people to faith in God. They did all those things. Verse 18, and it shall be when he, this king, sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. Talking about humility there. That he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. And that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So not necessarily a bad thing that there was going to be a king. God not only knew that Israel would want a king, but he permitted it. I don't know how you'd take too much of a different reading from what we just looked at. But that being said, God wanted any future king to depend on him. You see, future kings, again, must be Israelite, which spoke to a, having a heritage of faith. Future kings were warned not to acquire many horses, many wives, nor excessive silver and gold. And this was a sign of the need to remain dependent on him and set apart. What happened with some of these intermarriages, accumulating wives from, as part of political alliances, another thing that God warned against, you don't need to form political alliances. You're supposed to drive them out. You're supposed to be set apart, not intermixed. So as a result of not heeding God's word as it related to trusting him to defend them, they sought to defend themselves often by forming these treaties, alliances, political alliances that always involved or often involved these intermarriages where they would take foreign wives. Well, look how that turned out. They weren't set apart anymore. That's why 
God says the same thing about being set apart as it relates to finding a partner who has a common faith in Jesus Christ and wants to live their lives in a way that would be dependent on God, focused on God, prioritizing God in your life. Next thing that we see here is that God also wanted any future king to be a spiritual leader and example for the nation. So there was caveats to this where it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but God wanted that future king to depend on him. God wanted that future king to not get distracted, to be set apart, and God also wanted the future king to be a spiritual leader and example for the nation. God gave instructions we just read that the king was to write out a copy of the book of Deuteronomy and then what were they supposed to do with it? Read it all his days. The idea was that by meditating continually on God's word, the king would walk by faith personally and then lead the nation in faith collectively. And you think about our own ability to be of any positive influence in leading men or leading people, whoever they are, little people in our lives or fellow believers or what have you. The only way that could be true is if we were meditating on God's word. We were letting God's truth permeating our, permeate our thinking. We were letting God speak through our lives in, in essence, being a channel for God to work through. That's how that could be true. But to be an example, it reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, 2 through 3 is speaking to elders in the, the church age and the age of grace, saying this to them, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Encouraging people to willingly choose to just go with the flow, come alongside, be a part of this movement, this, this forward movement where we're forgetting the past, but we're moving forward, seeking collectively to serve the God, serve God, to lift God up, to make Him bigger, to glorify Him, to magnify His name in the places and spaces that we go, but to do that collectively. So do that willingly, but not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, wanting to do this for the right reasons. Not to be lords over those entrusted to you, but what instead? Being examples to the flock. That's what the kings of Judah, but kings of Israel, I guess in general, that's what they were to be. That was God's idea. If you're going to have a king, they should be a reflection of me. They should be a spiritual leader and example for the nation. But they weren't. So we come to this section about how nothing good comes from human wisdom and self-direction. We have this idea that man always falls short. It wasn't necessarily, this is how they ended up getting a king. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Here were some caveats that God had in mind as it related to a king. None of them which were consistently true in the lives of any of the kings. None None that ended up after the divided kingdom uh, being the kings of the northern tribes. Uh, very few of them as it related to the kings of Judah. The southern tribes. Very few examples. And we're going to go through all, all of the ones that had a little bit positive. We're going to be going through that in Chronicles. But nothing good comes from human wisdom and self-direction. So having a king 
consolidating this leadership, consolidating this strength, in and of itself, it wasn't the problem. The problem was with the motives behind Israel's request. That's why when you have Samuel being distraught about this, I think a part of it was he saw their improper motives. It wasn't that Samuel knew nothing about Deuteronomy or Genesis. It was that Samuel saw what they were doing and their reasons behind it, their motives behind it, and, and that they were flawed. Now, there's at least two distinct flaws in Israel's motives here. The first one is they wanted a king like all the nations. Notice how we saw that twice, if you're still in 1 Samuel 8. We saw that twice. In verse 5, we saw it. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. In verse 20, you see it again where it says, that we also may be like all the nations. That we also may be like all the nations. Now imagine how much, how cringeworthy that is from a divine perspective. God had said you're supposed to be a distinct people, a peculiar people, a nation of lights, a set apart nation. That's your mission. And here they are saying, no, we want to be just like all the nations. Now, you might say this is kind of a historical message. I'm not getting much out of it. Take that away. Have that be your takeaway tonight. God wanted, to you to, wanted you to be distinct. He wanted you to be set apart. He wanted you to be so different because he was the one shining through your life that you weren't following the routine of the world. You, you weren't being conformed to the world. You weren't, you weren't indistinguishable from the world. But as you were enjoying him, as you were rightly relating to him, as you were depending on him, as his spirit was living in your life, was working in your life, living in you and working in your life, people would see a difference. They would say, why? Why don't you do that? all the same things that we do. Well, because you're not thinking the same way that they do. Remember, behavior totally secondary to the thinking. Why do you have a different outlook on things? Because I have a different mindset. I have a different perspective. We call that divine perspective. If I have human perspective, if I have World, the, the world's way of thinking, we call that world, worldview, uh, a human worldview, instead of a divine worldview. I'm not going to be different at all. When I go to my job, when I gather with friends, when I go to school, nobody's going to see anything different in me. The difference comes from God shining his light through my, through my life. Again, purely as a byproduct of I'm just enjoying him. I'm resting in him. I'm trusting him. I'm depending on him. There's a song from a number of years ago that says, the song is called Different. You should Google it. You might like it. I want to be different. I want to be changed. Till all of me is gone and all that remains is a fire so bright that all the world sees. I want to be different, that there's something different in me. A fire so bright that all the world sees.
Is that your prayer? Or are you just kind of going with the flow? You know what the default is? If you just go with the flow, you're not transformed. You're conformed. Like I tell young people sometimes, any dead fish can float downstream with the current. It takes a living fish to swim against the current. But that's a big flaw in this plan. Human wisdom, self-direction, nothing good comes of it. But they wanted to be just like the other nations. The second part, probably equally as flawed in their thinking, is they wanted a king to fight battles. They wanted a king to fight their battles. They were scared. They were under attack. But the problem with that being their motive is that God was already fighting their battles. God had repeatedly in Scripture promised to fight their battles, and he had faithfully done so. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you some references here. I want you to look at how many different times God says, I'll fight your battles. I don't need you to fight. I need you to, just, I need you to fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14, 14. Deuteronomy 1.30, Deuteronomy 3.22, also from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4, from Joshua, Joshua 10.14, Joshua 10.42, which I'll read to you in a second, and Joshua 23.3, and these are just some of the references from before this time period. He says it again numerous times afterwards. But let's read Joshua 10.42 for the sake of just remembering where Joshua is. Why don't you turn there? Joshua 10.42. So the next book after Deuteronomy. So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we have Joshua because now the nation after Moses' death after the first generation has died out, now they do go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua 10, 42. It says this. It's talking about a number of different kings that have been conquered, nations that have been conquered, but it says, all these kings and their land Joshua took at one time. Now catch this. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. But look in the context. All of these kings were conquered. They want a king, but they didn't have a king now. They had the king of kings. God was fighting their battles and they were being victorious. God had already promised to do this, this thing that was driving this decision. Now, additionally, God had fought Israel's battles under the leadership of Samuel, too. In, in just the prior chapter, chapter 7, God threw the Philistines into confusion and they were defeated before Israel, if you were to look at 1 Samuel 7, verse 10. If you look at 1 Samuel seven thirteen, it says this, the hand of God, Jehovah God, we're talking about Yahweh here, was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. God was, had done this in the very recent history, the very, the very chapter preceding this. 
See, God brought Israel victory over the Philistines and peace between Israel and the Amorites, all under the judgeship or the leadership of Samuel. Again, you can read about that in the very chapter before this, chapter 7, 13 through 14. But apparently, this was not good enough for the people of Israel. So bad motives. Nothing good comes from his human wisdom and self-direction, though the king aspect of this in and of itself was maybe not a bad, a bad thing. Now, if we continued on with chapter 8, we'd see that the people, God said, yeah, let them have what they want, but warn them that having a king is actually going to be oppressive. And you can read about that in verses 10 through 18, the warning that they got. For the sake of time, we're going to keep moving. But they ignored God's warning and they pressed forward anyway. And that's verses 19 through 22 of chapter 8. I'm going to skip that also just for the sake of time. You can read those verses. They were warned. They knew it would come. It proved to be true in the future. And they wanted to go forward anyway. But that's how we get to Saul. How did the nation of Israel even end up with a king? That's how. Now as we look at background regarding Saul, there's a number of things that the Bible details about the life of of Saul, And here's just a few of the general ones. His name. The name Saul comes from the Hebrew word meaning asked. Now, you're going to see that he was approached by Samuel and he was asked, told, the Lord has chosen you to be the king. Saul was also what we'd call a stereotypically logical king. Saul was the son of Kish. He was a wealthy Benjamin, Benjaminite. And he was known for being tall and handsome. We can see that if we turn to chapter 9. You're like, really? The Bible talks about how tall and handsome the guy was? Yep, that's what it does. Verses 1 through 3. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abilil, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite. Now catch this, a mighty man of power, and many translations have a wealthy man of power there. Verse 2, and he had a choice and handsome son. How would you like to be called a choice? A choice son. A choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Now catch this, there was none, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. What a description. He was the most handsome man in Israel. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land is how you could take that. Now, he was ultimately chosen by God. Turn to chapter 9, verse 15. In 15, now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow about this time I will send. Who sent this man? God did. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Was God going to use him as an instrument to provide salvation? Yes, as God had done with many other different means and methods throughout the Bible, not so that men could worship a king, but that men would see that their, the God they worshiped was able. He was faithful and able. Now he says, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. And God is a present and aware God, knowing what people are going through. Verse 17, so when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is. See, this was appointed by God. There he is. The man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall reign over my people. There was no confusing this. So he was chosen, ultimately chosen by God. Now, did God know in advance how this would turn out? In all likelihood, yes. Did he choose Saul to force that kind of an outcome on him? No. Saul had every opportunity to have had 
a God-honoring, faithful reign over the nation of Israel to be an instrument and an example to the people that God could have used. And to some extent, we'll see that he did, but not to the extent that it should have been. He was successful, general, more general background, he, was successfully, he successfully established Israel against its enemies. You can read about that. Turn to ver- ch- uh, chapter 14. There's many places you could read about victories, but 14 kind of summarizes some of it. Chapter 14, verses 47 through 48. Verse 47, it says, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. 48, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. So he was successful. Sounds like he was brave. Sounds like he was a wise leader in the early days. And in terms of when he reigned, again, he reigned around 1050. He reigned for 40 years from 1050 to 1010 BC, roughly. Now, another positive thing as we're looking about general things about Saul is, Saul was a good, was he a good spiritual leader? Well, a couple of things. There was a couple of positive things. He actually had some spiritual highlights in his life. Now, why am I going into all this? Because it ends on such a sour note in Chronicles about what a bad example he was of a king. And then we're, we're again trying to move towards this picture of what the ideal king would be. And it clearly wasn't Saul. But that doesn't mean that he had no spiritual highlights. He expressed humility in the beginning. If we look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, go back from 14 till 9, verse 22, this is after he's told you're going to be the king. Nope, that's not it. Verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite, meaning of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Now that's a little bit being condescending to yourself because he was from a, pers- a family that had some power and some wealth. Why then do you speak like this to me? Meaning I don't understand why you would pick me. There's some humility in that statement. It's subtle, but it's, it's there. How about 1 Samuel 15, 17? This is now after some of his major failures where God has already told him the kingdom is going to be taken from you. He did that in chapter 13, but after another failure where we had this incomplete obedience where he spared the fattest things and he let the king live. This is what was said to him. So Samuel said in verse 17, 15, 17, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? He's pointing back to this, that conversation. Well, why me? I'm not, I'm not anything noble. And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel even when you were small? But you see how it says when you were little in your own eyes, meaning there was a time in his life where he was humble and he had humility. But that humility was replaced with self-serving and destructive pride. That's why in 1 Peter 5, 6, in the same passage about spiritual leadership, it says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. 
Other spiritual highlights in terms of him being a good spiritual leader, God's spirit was upon him at times. We see that in 1 Samuel 10.10. He actually prophesied as led by God in 1 Samuel also 10.10. He was sensitive to God's law. In 1 Samuel 14, we can see an example of that. In verses 32 through 34, what he saw was the nation violating some of the dietary laws about eating food with the blood. The nation was doing that. He saw that. He was appalled by it, and he put a stop to it. So was he aware of God's law? It sounds like he was. Was he sensitive to it? It seems like he was. And again, that's even after what had happened in chapter 13 when he was told, you're going to lose your kingdom. This, that's when he had presumptively acted as a priest and offered sacrifices without waiting for Samuel. That had caused God to prematurely end his kingdom in a sense, though he was allowed to rule to the end of his life, to say the kingdom's not going to pass on in your family. So even in the face of that, he was still sensitive. Same chapter, verse 35, chapter 14, 35, he built an altar to God. This again after some major failure, after a major announcement of disappoint, that must have been disappointing was made to him, he still built an altar to the Lord. Another interesting thing that I found as I was thinking about, well, was, was Saul ever a good leader? It sounds like there were times he was. But he also removed the false spiritual practitioners from the land, meaning witches, mediums, soothsayers, those types of people that are false you know, are promoting false worship, false gods, demonic activity. He removed that. Now, some kings that had gone after him did not do that. You can read about him removing them from the land in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. It's ironic that he did that, given that his story ends with him seeking out one of these demonic soothsayers, mediums, uh, witch, witchcraft. That's how his life ends is that God doesn't give him the answers he's looking to, for, doesn't respond to him, so he seeks out this witch of Endor. And that's, unfortunately, kind of one of the last things that happens in his life. But he had actually removed all that from the land. Kudos, kudos to him. Obviously, he had, there were some things where he was a good spiritual leader, but unfortunately, there were these major spiritual failures in his life not going to cover all of them. One of them I just touched on, this unauthorized sacrificial offering from 1 Samuel 13. That's where God said, the kingdom's not going to stay with you. Then we have Saul's downward spiral continue as he fails to eliminate all of the Amalekites as God had specifically told him and their livestock as God had specifically commanded him. He decided to spare the life of King Agag along with some of the choice livestock. Most of you know that story. Now, most of you probably don't know this because I didn't know this. This is very interesting. If you go forward to the time of the exile where the nation of Israel is in Babylon, where the setting is for the story of Esther, who was the antagonist or the evil person in that story? Haman, right? Haman. How is Haman described? He's described as Haman the Agagite. Agagite. He's a direct descendant from Agag. That's where Agagite comes from. So here you have this incomplete obedience way before that, hundreds of years before that. Trail your way through time, and there's many examples of this. Midianites, Moabites, a lot of this comes from bad decisions where there's children and offspring for un from unfaithfulness. 
even thinking about uh, Ishmael through Hagar, uh, some of the children through Keturah, some of these children that come from unbelief, they end up developing these nations that end up becoming the perennial enemies of Israel. But they come from the same lineage. But fast forward all these years and you get to this, raise your hand if you knew that. Two, three, four, five. Okay, you guys are gonna get a treat after the service? No. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Pretty neat little, neat little nugget. Always learning, the Bible's always given. You're mining for gold, friends. That's what we're doing. Now, another thing that he did is not only did he not obey God in that instance, but you probably remember from the account in 1 Samuel 15 that he then tried to cover it up by lying to Samuel, which was in essence lying to God. And that disobedience was the last straw. We already had the promise that his, the lineage wouldn't continue through his family, but the Spirit of God is said to have been withdrawn from Saul in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, following that incident. Now, a third one is that when the Philistine army gathered against Israel after Samuel's death, Saul was terrified and he tried to inquire of the Lord, but he received no answer through the prophets. So he disguised himself and inquired at a medium of a medium in Endor, and God actually intervened and had Samuel appear with this bleak message that the kingdom would be taken from him, the Philistines would conquer Israel, and Saul and his sons would be killed. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 28. So Saul's life ends poorly. Saul was allowed to serve out the rest of his life as king, but he was plagued by an evil spirit that tormented him and brought about waves of madness. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. Saul's final years were profoundly tragic as he endured periods of deep depression. And the curious thing about it was that David, who would become the next king, became the soothing musician or influence for the troubled king. He played music that temporarily restored King Saul's sanity. Saul actually embraced David as one of his own until Saul realized that God was with David and that David would be the next king. And then he sought to kill David at every opportunity. Saul's spiritual decline coincided with his decline as an effective leader too because he spent so much time, energy, and expense trying to kill David instead of capitalizing on some of the victories and the early momentum against the Philistines that ended up leaving the nation vulnerable to attack to vulnerable to subsequent defeat, and it ultimately cost him his life and his son's life, lives, and you can read about that in 1 Samuel 31. So I've spent the bulk of my time with a general overview. Some of you were like, how are you gonna make any observations from chapter 10? Just a couple. Turn, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. In these 14 verses, there's just a couple things I wanna end with. There's not a lot here. I said naturally you cannot the history of Israel's kings. You can't tell the history of Israel's kings leading up to the final Messiah king. You can't tell that story without discussing Saul. He was the first king, so that's why it's here. Sadly, the chronicler only includes the tragic story of Saul's death in none of the rest of this that we went through tonight. And likely that's because of his failure as a spiritual leader overall and his lack of connection to the Davidic covenant or the Davidic line of kings. That's why there's not a lot here, but it, you have 14 verses worth of it here. But there are a couple of interesting observations to make, make from this very brief passage, and there are these. Even at the very end, 
Notice how Saul recognizes his set-apart identity. And you say, where do you get that? Well, look at verse 4. As he sees that he's been hit, he's wounded, he sees that he's not likely to make it, he says, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest, catch this, these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. Now, is he worried about the abuse? Probably. But notice how he calls them uncircumcised men. Is there part of, part of that just this superiority, this superior attitude, the superiority conflicts that, that historically became kind of associated with Judaism as a whole or the Israelite nation? We saw that when you get to the Pharisees, this disdain for people, even though God was supposed to shine through them to save people or reach people. But no, I think there's more to it than that. I think there's a good aspect to it where he sees these men are, they're not of this set-apart nation that I am. They are not followers of the one true God. So I think there's an aspect of that. The other thing is that you see a, a sort of positive note in this, that the people, including David, they still honored the office of the king, King Saul, despite his failures. You see in verses 11 through 12, they retrieved his body, I don't, sounds like it's a body, but his body minus his head, but they retrieved buried his body, buried his body, and they fasted in sadness for his loss. The last thing, though, that I want to have as a takeaway is the primary point here. I think it's the primary point the chronicler is making. I think you can sum up why this is included here as you look at verses 13 and 14. It's that a lack of faith is effectively a death sentence. A lack of faith is effectively a death sentence. Now, physically here, but also, that's literally true here, but also spiritually and figuratively for all believers. See, so Saul died for, because of what? His unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. It says this, he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he, capital H, God killed him. There was divine punishment there, where God actually took his life because he refused to trust the Lord. You can talk about the faithfulness from the perspective of the behavior, but the biggest issue with faithfulness is that it's not trusting the Lord. He wasn't trusting the Lord. And if you think about this, refusing to trust God, refusing to follow God's direction, refusing to ask God for, for guidance in your life, it's the equivalent of spiritual suicide. That's effectively what happened in Saul's life. Is that you are killing yourself when you think about it's death to be separated from God. It's not spiritual life. It's spiritual death to be separated from God. Well, that involves trust. I'm either trusting God, responding by faith, walking in faith, allowing God then to work through me, having a life that could be described as a, a life of faith, a faithful life. I'm inquiring of God. I'm being led by God. I'm being directed by God or I'm a dead man walking. Practically, not positionally when it comes to believers or unbelievers. That's what the takeaway is here. We're pointing to the source of life is going to be a response of faith. Looking toward the life that the king of kings, the better king, can provide. A better kind of king will provide. And this wasn't it. And so that's how succinct this, this section is. See, man always falls short. 
The kings were supposed to be the spiritual leaders and promote true worship among the nation of Israel. They were supposed to set a spiritual tone for the nation and we see the very first start here is not good. See, man is hopeless apart from God's intervention and complete provision. So being a good example to others can only occur as a byproduct of walking by faith and Paul is here as an example of somebody who did not. They would not walk by faith. So starting with this life, again, you're saying, what's the point of all this? The point is to see clearly the need for, again, a better kind of king. And that theme will continue as we move on to the kings that follow with David next. But thankfully, we know that a better kind of king not only came, but is coming again. That's what we should think about as we think about uh, we're looking through the storyline of the Bible. It's one, when we see other people's failures, it should always remind us how much we need the Lord how prone we are to having the same kind of mindset that was expressed in Saul. And it should encourage us, instead of wasting my life away as a dead man walking with spiritual death being the, the essence figuratively in my life, that I'd enjoy the spiritual life that God offers by trusting him, depending on him and letting him work in my life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can spend your word. Thank you for this even positive and negative a reminder of even what was involved in the life of Saul. Pray that we would have seen ourselves a little bit on both ends of the spectrum there as we looked at that. Pray that we would, it would give us a renewed desire to want to trust you, to depend on you, to want to enjoy you and have uh, an intimate personal relationship with you, to walk in fellowship with you and let you direct, lead, and undertake and provide in our lives. Thank you for this time together. Pray that it would have been encouraging.